0: Today, we are here with Dan Hagerich. Did I say it correctly, Dan?
1: Perfect. All right, awesome. got it.
0: Dan is going to share his story. So, Dan, I'm looking at you for people who are not seeing you right now and only listening to this episode. I'm looking at you. You look very healthy to me. So, take us back to the beginning. When did your cancer story start?
1: Probably when I was born. Really? Oh, wow. when When you think about... the way we're born into this world, it leads us to these adversities that we stumble upon. But in truth, the cancer appeared in my life when I was about 20, turning 29, and I just got married, and okay. I was essentially on course for the American script, the American dream. You know, you get, you go to college, you know, get a good education, go to college, so we don't have to be the carry the blue collar. Uh, mentality down the line, and just keep that going. So work with your mind, not with your body, and go get a good job. I was kind of conditioned into believing that I sh- I had to be a doctor, lawyer, and engineer for my mom, and that and as a kid that kind of made me think that I I don't necessarily know if I want to do that, but that was the way I thought I could get the love and respect for my mom was to go to school for that, and so I go to school. Oh, yeah, I, I
0: just want to say I, I hear you because it was my dad and he wanted me to be a doctor
1: right. And so, so that all led to some sort of unconscious resentment. And of course I went to college for all the wrong reasons. So I was just partying and working and (laughs) I figured, and I was smart and intelligent where I could figure out how professors would teach. And, um, then I could actually just not go to class and I could just, I knew what they were going to ask on a test. I could figure out their, their patterns. Everyone has a a tell or a, a way that they teach. And so I could figure out patterns. Um, I wasn't a great student at all. And where'd you go to school? I'm just Southeastern Mass University, which is a section, it's UMass Dartmouth now. Oh, okay. In, in Massachusetts. Right. I went for engineer, civil engineering. So I graduated and I made it through. But I was not pleased. And I went to go to do the work and the work I hated. And it led so I was I was in this path of the American dream. And for five, six years uh I was an engineer and I met a woman. So that's part of the script and you get the woman and then you you get married and then you go buy a house. So we bought a townhouse, beautiful townhouse as a first house. And I start saving for retirement at 25. I'm like worried about retiring. Like this is like, this is what was programmed in. And I'm like anxiously watching it and obsessing over it. So at 28, I found that I was sick, really sick. Um, so what what do you mean by sick? What sickness, kind of sickness? I started having a flu, flu-like symptoms, okay. but then they really were um, uncommon in the sense that the, each day it got worse. And then I started to feel around my lymph nodes, and I felt one right here that was really painful. It was about the size of a pea, and it was a, as hard as a stone. And when I touched it, it, it elicited a shock all the way down the right side of my body, out my foot. And I was like, what is that all about? That doesn't make any right. sense. And then over the course of a few days, that turned from a pea-sized to a walnut, not to a walnut, but basically to an almond. And then I was having night sweats, severe rigors, night chills, severe rigors, uh, every 20 minutes, had to change the sheets. That was just not a common flu. And, and then I was getting obsessive over this particular lymph node. So, uh, it started growing pretty rapidly until one point I went to the emergency room and the doctor in there said, Hey, if you were my kid, I'd have that, I'd have that biopsy yesterday. And, and so we, they did arrange for a biopsy very quickly. Uh, they sent the pathology reports down to um wherever. And I wound up meeting up with Dr. Lawrence Cloud when I was 29. So here I was in his office. I didn't know what the prognosis or diagnosis was. They had a sense that it was definitely some kind of cancer, but they couldn't give me any of that kind of information. And I was in, that's a living hell. That pathology part is a living hell. It was four weeks of waiting for some sort of-
0: Four weeks? Yeah, they said they
1: they had to double check it because they wanted to make sure. So it was two weeks was the turnaround time, but then they wanted to make sure, right? So I was four weeks roughly, and and the thing is, it's you know I'm wrapped up. I'm still here anyway. I I walked into Doctor Lawrence Cloud's office, and I was pretty open minded at, at the time, just to soothe my own stress level then, and okay. so I was I was in the mindset just be open minded, just hear what he has to say. And when I walked in, he was standing up behind his desk. And when I came up, we um, met shaking hands eye to eye. And he said, Dan, how did such a young ba- man such as yourself get into the business of cancer?
0: That's how he said it? Oh, that was it. Shout. Sorry. <laughs> That's just like, so you're got to, you got into the business of cancer. Like, what the hell? I'm sorry. The, That's weird.
1: No, it was the it's best bizarre. question ever. It was the best question ever. This is a Hollywood script that could never be written. So what, what happened was, is that real, that question cracked right to the core of my being and it turned me inward. And as an engineering mindset, I turned that question and said, how did I get here? What was it that I'd been doing or not doing that brought me here? And what, before
0: you tell us that, what kind of cancer at that point did he say you had?
1: He didn't tell me anything.
0: Wait, what? No, what?
1: Nothing. No, that was the first words out of his mouth.
0: But did but then did he tell you the diagnosis?
1: Yeah, eventually he did.
0: Yeah. Okay, and what was that?
1: Well, the, it was a non it was a uh, an aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And okay. so it was definitely on the side of the T helper side where um my body my immune system just wasn't very good at yeah. detecting and uh, producing antibodies for certain things. Well, anyway, I asked that question inward, and I seeked the answer. It's interesting because when there's a powerful question that really hits you in the heart of your own soul, your mind will go seek the answer. And it put yeah. me in it put me in the place of responsibility. It was really interesting. So, in that moment, a flash of how did I get into the business of cancer? Well the first things that came to mind was, well, Dan, if you were being more Christ-like in your life, would you be here? And emphatically, no. And so what that actually translates, you know, it's not the coming home, you know, Jesus moment. It's basically in my Catholic upbringing, I heard that language around. So it was just language. But in my interpretation of that, I was not living my true authentic self. And somewhere along the line, I was living inauthentic. And when I connected that, it started to show me how I manipulated the world to get what I wanted. And that happiness was in the people, places, and things of this world. In many ways, it was how I was how I was self-hating myself because of that resentment in the, in the food I ate, the way I ate, when I ate, or what I was drinking, the drugs, my dad's uh, separation from my mom, the way that went down, that was painful. And I was not able to understand how to be emotionally honest about those things. I had no emotional literacy. I really was inept in that area. And that was showing me, that question showed me all this. And so I was like, no wonder why I'm here. No wonder why I'm here. And all it's, so the behaviors that I was invested in uh, or doing were definitely contributing factors to this experience that I was having and all I needed to say was wow I see how I've done wrong now I have an opportunity to do right
0: let me ask you this i just want to push back a little what did you do wrong was it really wrong or was it just an authentic
1: well it i mean strike I, me as you did no that was just that person. was the experience in in that moment that was the experience yeah. right and let's face it i know i know what's right and what's wrong i know that drinking and trying to drink a case of beer in less than 10 minutes is not a good thing it's not a right thing to do
0: it's not. It's, yeah okay i agree <laughs> it's you not, know it's not
1: snorting not cocaine until normal. you know for a whole weekend or whatever and winding up on the tables is not a good thing it's not the right way to live it's not let's just soften it and i appreciate that you want to soften that feeling of responsibility, but that was my own intensity and my personality. So I needed that experience and that intensity to shake me up. And so that language is perfect for me. I know how I'm doing wrong. I, I know how I can do right. And so the softening part is that I just wasn't living as I was living less than an optimal human being. Let's just say that. Right. Okay. I was, And if I really amped it up, I was living a dis, a, an ignorant and disrespectful lifestyle. I was very arrogant about okay. my life. I was ignorant about the things that I was doing are, that was harming me.
0: Back up. How were you arrogant? How because I knew
1: Because I knew that I was doing things that were harmful, but I did it anyway to fit into society, to fit into my social structure circles. I knew the things that I was doing weren't healthy or in my best interest, but it was in my best interest to satisfy that emotional illiteracy, that emotional dishonesty, so I could feel accepted by some people.
0: That doesn't again i'm just gonna push back you can tell me to f off if you like it doesn't sound like arrogance to me it sounds more like a need to fit in
1: i know know, but that's the that's that's that was the point where i'm saying is i know i'm doing wrong and i'm doing it anyway so that's sort of the umbrella thing and it's not just in that area as it was definitely in other areas that it showed up for example not doing my homework that's arrogant. I know I'm supposed to do my homework, but I'm not gonna do it, you know? And so it, it can show up in the small mundane thing and it can show up in a bigger bigger thing with relationships right. and stuff like that. So, and th- that was just language to actually give me some fire. You know, it was just something yeah. to put some fire under my, bu- under my butt and uh, take, take back my life. I'm in this place, I'm 29 and supposedly living the American dream. Now I'm in the American nightmare. And all that reality that I had set up was on, uh, for less, lack of better words, a house of cards. Okay. And so it came that, that, that question allowed me to say everything is questionable right now. Everything in my life so is questionable.
0: After you got that question and you had this big epiphany, just going back to the lymphoma for a second, what did your doctor say? Was the stage the treatment plan like what was what was
1: the after that eternal moment? After that eternal moment, he had another statement, Dan, with a little bit of pain and suffering, you will grow stronger. Okay, and so in that moment, because I had that experience before that, that meant if I go into the pain, if I enter the pain, it'll be a lot less painful than resisting it. Number one. And number two, the part of me that's going to grow stronger is the spiritual, the soul side that that question hit. That part of me, that authentic side, if I can go through the pain, will get stronger, has to get stronger by go, to go through the pain. And I thought- Did you feel hopeful? Mm, I wouldn't say I felt hopeful. I wouldn't say any of that. I felt cocky. <laughs> that's probably a better word. I said, more athletic and competitive. All right, this is going on. I'll do my part. You do your part. What do we got to do? And he Okay, so what, what did he say to that? He said, well, if you, do, if you do nothing and if you do anything, you probably have five years to live. That's what the market is uh, kind of telling me. So the, the the standard protocol is a CHOP, CHOP protocol for that particular cancer. You got 50-50 chance, whatever. We're just going to do that because that's the beginning thing. All right, I don't want a second opinion. So I'm feeling in my own power. I'm like, I want a second opinion. I don't believe you. Good.
0: Good right. for
1: you. So I go and see another doctor and the doctor said, yeah, well, what Dr. Cloud is suggesting is the right suggestion. I agree. And, and I said, doc, let me ask you something. You're giving me a 50-50 chance of life no matter what you do. And I said, if I take 50% here and 50% here, 50% I'm going to live and 50% I'm not going to live. Okay, great. If I say there is no such thing as that I'm never going to live, I'm only going to live, how much do I have left? he goes, you have 50% p- chance. I said, no, it's 100%. Sorry, buddy. I got this. And so he said, Dan, of all the people I know, it's 90% mental, 10% showing up, right? So we did the CHOP protocol for eight months, you know, and I eight lost all- Eight months? Yeah. Yeah. Eight, eight cycles. Eight months. Yeah. It was eight cycles. Wow. Very intense. And um, at that point, I decided I had to stop living- True to myself, and stop figuring out that what what that was. But I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have my wife. to, I didn't have that uh, that life skill developed of my emotional honesty or sharing because I felt like it would be, I would sh- be shamed or made guilty or made fun of or something would happen. So I just held this Even in. Even
0: with your wife yeah. during this time.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so did she
0: try to get you to open up?
1: No, she hid too. And really? so, yeah, I mean, we just had space for each other, but we didn't really know what to do. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So that eight months was pretty challenging, but I felt like a part of me was getting stronger. And it went into remission, according to science or the medicine, and it came back about three months later. That's
0: one. You know, I forgot to ask you something, sorry, important. You, you gave us your age, but that doesn't really mean anything. Oh, I'm 57 so, now. With, so
1: this was in 1994.
0: Oh, wow. This is when they were using some pretty hard kind of drugs that they might not use today or at
1: least they not. They still use them but non-Hodgkin's like, lymphoma. Some of them, yeah.
0: Wow. They
1: okay. might use them in All different right. cocktails and different sequencing. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So eight months you have no evidence of disease for three months, it comes back. How did you know it was back?
1: S- the same sy- symptoms. Really? Yeah.
0: Exactly the same.
1: Yeah, except for the wow. the lymphoma had changed from the, the collarbone and the, the chest uh, down to the groin. And now they're like, okay, now it's stage three. It's above the diaphragm. It's below the diaphragm. So now it's a little bit more tricky. So we're going to have to do a bone marrow transplant. and. We'll use your particular bone marrow if it's clean of any of the um, cancer that we could find. So that was. Now we're setting up for the bone marrow transplant, and that's when they they like because you relapse so quickly. This is even more. This this is even darker than we thought. Okay. Okay. So I said, all right. Well, you do your thing. I'll do my thing, and we went through the process. It was three mini bone. It was two mini bone marrow transplants, and then one big one. So they did a stem cell process and then I got the stem cells back and then I got the bone marrow back, That was, uh, and so that was another eight months, uh, roughly. I think I got discharged somewhere in the middle of, end of August and cocky again. Okay, there's no sign of cancer. A month later, I started getting sick again. I was in Colorado and in October, that's when I noticed the tumors coming back again. So now it relapsed again. And that's when, that's when I felt empty. I felt really empty. And I told my wife, I didn't want to do any more chemo. I just didn't want to do any more. I just wanted to ride it out and live it out. I just had no interest in it, but she really infused me with her life force in some ways saying, hey, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I said, well, you know what? If I have to do it, I have to build a body. And I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to really make a radical shift in my diet and exercise. Yeah, And it comes down. And so I changed that language for the listeners as I've um, upgraded or updated that language. It meant I had to learn how to nourish myself. And then I had, to, I had to learn how to move and not just move physically, but move emotionally and move creatively as well. So I took this on as a creative endeavor of like, what can I push the human being to do if I get my diet and exercise right? So that's when I started the journey of learning about using my engineering mindset in some ways is take the human body apart and start studying the human body and see if I can start to take the things out and what no longer serves me, throw that out and what does serves who I want to be. I'm going to put that back in. I'm going to rebuild this body's body, mind in alignment with my spirit, the soul. And, and that journey, uh, I did the bone mount transplant. I, it failed, but then I had to go through chemotherapy again. And in 1996, in the spring, right around May, I told them I'm not doing any more chemo. I cut the protocol short and they were upset because I was a candidate for their experiment, right? Yeah. So I cut it short and I said, I'm going to start training for the Pan Mass Challenge and I'm going to do... Which s- is what, it's a, people who might not know. That's team a, team uh, a fundraiser for the Jimmy Fund. It's a 200-mile oh, bike ride from Sturbridge, Massachusetts to P-Town, Provincetown. So it's a 200-mile bike ride over two days. And it's all basically a lot of people that are cancer survivors or people that are going through cancer or riding on behalf of a, a deceased person, et cetera. Sure. And they raise a lot of money. So I was like, you know what? That inspires me enough. Um, some people were riding on my behalf when I was in the marrow transplant in 95. Oh, wow. And I had, their, I had all their you know, cards. Hey, we're riding on your behalf. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to ride with you guys this year. And they're like, no way! there's no way you could do that? They were scared. They're like, there's not. Sure. The doctors are like, there's no way you're gonna ride. I'm like, you you don't know me. <laughs> yes, I am. And uh, I trained. I put 1,500 miles on the bike. I stopped the chemo. Um, and I rode that ride, and there was no more tumors at that time. And I was elated. I was like, oh, okay, I think I have this. And I started studying uh, personal training and human anatomy the nervous system, the hormonal system. So I started to dig into this and I started to become manic in it in some ways and very obsessed. And, and I felt like that could have been just something that, that was who my true nature was, right? Because I was always athletic and always into doing crazy things with physical fitness and stuff. So I was like, this is fun. And I was coaching ice hockey, I started coaching ice hockey. And lo and behold, the, the tumors came back again. So it came back. This is number three. Uh let's see. Yes, after the bone marrow transplant, I went through another protocol. So that was the uh the third. So this would be the third relapse. So the fourth time having Third rel- cancer. Relapse. Yeah. Okay. That and so that, and this is
0: after that bike ride that you completed.
1: Yeah. It was after the bike ride. And and so and that at that point they did like a 24 hour um this came back in my spine now. So this is when it actually grew in my Mm -hmm. spine. And that was, um, right around November of 1996. So it wasn't very long after I rode that bike ride in August and it came back in my bones and in my spine. And that was really debilitating. So they had to do, um, a significant amount of radiation at that time. And, and they did, they didn't think my body was ready to take on more chemo. So, they were hoping that the radiation would take care of it. And it, and it did temporarily. So we went through December and then into January, I was in remission and then March, it came back again. So now this is the fifth relapse or the fifth time, fourth relapse. And so it came back again and they had to do a, they decided to do a 24 hour infusion for four days. So I had to wear a fanny pack for 24 hours a day for four days. And then I'd go on on the fifth day and I'd get, uh, I would get in in-house treatment for the fifth day, and I go back, and we had to do that about every three weeks. And I was still gung ho. I'm saying, okay, I'm figuring it out. I have a question to ask. I was given a question, Dan. How'd you get into the business of cancer? Okay, if I answer the pain. I got to go deeper. I'm not answering. I'm missing some something to my thesis here. This was my this is my PhD thesis in life. And Professor Cloud gave me my my real education. <laughs> you know, the one that mom didn't. Influenced me to get this was my real one, and this is like a, a journey. So, I was doing personal training. I started a, a corrective holistic exercise kinesiology internship with uh, Paul Check over at the Check Institute, and I was just surrounding myself with people that were in the health field so that I could have access to their resources. Yeah, and so Paul was a very big player in that regards and. So in 97, I had to go through five months and I said, you know what, I'm stopping this chemo. I'm never doing chemo ever again. I'm gonna ride the pan mass challenge again. And sure enough, I did. And then I was really feeling good. I was getting some dietary things dialed in a little bit better. And uh, I went almost two years in remission until my wife left for the marriage with another man. And that, mm-hmm. and that freaked me out and it put me, it brought up all those emotional dishonesty, that emotional I, I, fragility, I guess, vulnerability of, yeah. you know, jealousy, anger, rage, grieving. What's wrong yeah. with me? What you know, I'm shameful. You know, I'm a, I, I guess I'm, I'm not man enough to have you. All that stuff was coming up in the summer of 99 And then I asked the question, I I went back to Dr. Lawrence, Cloud Socrates' oath there, and I I said, Tim, why are you suffering for her choice? And I Mm -hmm. said, wow, okay, that's a great question. Let's find the answer. And the answer was is that I had put my happiness in her. So that's why the relationship was on rocky ground right from the get-go in some regards, because unconsciously I'm projecting that you're responsible for my happiness and you're going to be responsible for my unhappiness in some way. It wasn't conscious. It was an unconscious thing. And and I said, no wonder why this was not going to work. Aha. Right. I need to learn how to like, like and love myself. I, I have to learn how to be happy for who I want to be in the world. What does that mean? I have no idea. So I started getting books on happiness and started to read, what does it mean to be happy for yourself? And And then I started to go into yoga centers and started to see what that meant.
0: All right. So, Dan, you were saying that no more chemo. You were done.
1: 1997.
0: Your wife had left. Yeah,
1: 1999. So
0: what in the heck did you do next when it came back after your
1: wife left? What happened was, is I went into a psychotic episode of mixed bipolar episode. And so I was now into psychiatric care and, uh, there were definitely bouts of thoughts and stuff like that of committing suicide and just wanting to end the pain. So it wasn't like I wanted, right. and so I was fighting this real burning desire to figure out that question. How did I get into the business of cancer? Because I said, Hey, if I could figure this out, I'll, I could save my soul and I can help a lot of people along the way. Right. So I had that burning desire. But then I had this other human part of me that was fighting and in pain. And so there's this dualistic thing going on inside me where I feel like I was being pulled apart. And that led me to uh, the spring of 2000 where I didn't know what to do. So I thought, well, I've never been confirmed in the Christianity, in Catholic Church or Christianity or whatever. And I said, that's the best I got. I'm going to go there and I'm just going to sign up for it. <laughs> Uh-huh. At, at least I got that side uh, some support that's outside of science outside of psychiatric care yeah that's true yeah and, and I was like it's gotta be it's gotta be something I have to do something anything is better than doing nothing and sitting in the the murky mud of this pain
0: that's true yeah
1: so you know going through psychiatry and going to <laughs> going to the church once a week uh to get this understanding of letting Christ come in. So I, um, I, it, it pushed me further apart to the point where at one morning I did wake up and I um, I was really in pain and I wound up, I was planning on how, if I wanted to kill myself, how would I do it? So I wound up getting, a, um, I wound up signing up at a gun club for safety lessons for a gun and being able oh to get access to a gun. And so that morning, I, I said, I got to end the pain. So I went into the gun club to get the gun and I wound up in there and it was perfect timing. No one could write this any better. There was no one in there. Really unusual. There was nobody in the gun club and, except for the guy at the counter. And uh, I go in there and sure enough, here I am. All right, let's do this. I'm going to do this. And that inner dialogue between the burning desire to want to live and the burning desire to end the pain it was like these two yeah. things going on. And one of them was like, it was actually even less than that, where it was like, you can't do it. You're too much of a coward anyway. You'll never do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And there was more explicits than that. And this is the intensity of my own soul or my own personality. And the other side was, right. was like, well, go ahead, motherfucker, do it. Go end it. Yeah. I, I dare you. Go ahead. Nobody. It's perfect. Nobody's here. Nobody cares. Right. So I remember I remember putting it in my mouth. And I remember seeing the movie uh, Lethal Weapon and Mel Gibson had that same thing. And and I go, oh, Jesus, this is a movie right now. And I go, I can't do it this way because I might live and I'll be in a radically vegetation state. Like I'm thinking I'm that tough. Right. So yeah. I want to make sure I'm doing it. And because of my anatomy studies, I knew that if you shoot yourself through the back of the bone, the, the lump of knowledge here, which is the right where the cerebra, uh, cerebellum is and where the medulla oblongata is, if you shoot right up there at about 22 to 30 degrees, you'll end your life instant. It's like what you see in the movies where they karate chop you there and it knocks you out. Okay. It's kind of the same place. Right. So here I am with the gun back in my head thinking, oh, that was pretty smart. All right. And this conversation went on for about three or four minutes. And then this third part of me, this other aspect said, hey, if you two are going to argue and go back and forth like this, Dan, why don't you guys both just take a shot at the target? And I was like, okay. And the, the two little inner voices, whatever was going on, said, okay, sounds good. So I took aim and I intently was like, I'm going to aim and I'm going to shoot this thing right in the bullseye. And I focused so intently that 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 target grew and grew and grew and grew until finally I entered in what Eckhart Tolle was, his work was about the power of now. I entered the power of now and all that story, all that stuff just left. There was no cancer. There was no divorce. There was no pain. There was nothing but this sense of full potential, a sense of humor, all intelligence. And I emptied the bullets all into the target. And in that moment, I realized that was what I needed to grow stronger and was the identity of that part of me instead of this human part that I, this identity that I am this body mind. I'm not, I am the spirit mind and I'm in the body. And that moment that showed me that. So I said, I need to learn to love that. Self-love for that is my answer to that question. How did I get into the business of cancer? I have falsely identifying with something other than what my true nature is as a spirit.
0: Okay.
1: I came back. I looked at the gun and I was like, "Hmm, guns don't kill people. It's the suffering of man that kills people. This gun ironically just saved my life, saved my soul. I put the gun down, never, never Mm -hmm. returned to it. And I, um, And what it did is it led me to a psychosis because I didn't have anyone to share this with. My psychiatrist would say that was a mental breakdown. (laughs) So I go into the psychiatric ward because I was in this pain in this place. I didn't have any place to go. So I said, all right, psychiatric ward. I go in. I said, I got something. I got, I have to learn how to love myself back to health and well-being. Can you help me? You know what they said? That's your mental illness talking. That's your mental illness talking. What? Room. Yeah. We need to get your medications right.
0: Oh,
1: God. You understand? We
0: all need to love ourselves. Yeah. They have
1: that. no idea what that means. And when you're in the psychiatric care, anything you say is psychotic. So they thought it was a hypermanic expression. That's all. I got the answer to this. I got the, you know. I'm a, so okay. what happened was I was so deflated And not being heard or felt or seen for who I really wanted to become and who I am, that I got so internally angry. Again, I couldn't express this anger in a healthy way. Two days later, my tumors came back for the sixth time.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And so that's when I experienced what I called life bankruptcy. I really didn't have any physical life force. I didn't have a lot of health. like metabolically speaking, energetically right. speaking. My wife, we were just getting that divorce this upcoming for the summer. Okay. And I had no identity for work because I was no longer an engineer. I mean, that was that was a facade. So nice. it was really empty in all three planes of body, mind, and spirit, or if you want to call it health, wealth, and love and relationships. That's life yeah. bankrupt. And But I had this soul force still there. Like this was personal. Now I was, I was like, I'm never doing medicine ever again. None of it fits my particular process or journey in this lifetime. So I had to figure out how to get out of there. So I, one night I woke up in the middle of the night, angry, doing push ups, just trying to channel this anger. I asked the nurse, I said, Hey, what can I do? They don't get it. And like, just tell them what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. and uh, act your way out. And I'm like, I got this. So the next morning, I'm like, if I need to sew, I'll sew. If I need to, whatever activity they had going on, I was like the cheerleader for it. (laughs) It was like overnight, right? So I wound up uh, in there for seven days. I got out and I wound up having to move back in my mom's house. And that's when all things started to shift because I had surrendered. There was a surrender point. Not only did I get the... Mm -hmm. Uh, confirmation into Christ, which was not, it was just sort of a lark. It was just something I had to do, like just because I needed something. And literally that was pretty impactful in some ways, you know, it was, it, there was some impact, but then I went home and I basically was sitting at reading the power of now because my friends, I said, Hey, I just had this experience. And he sent me, Hey, you got to read Eckhart Tolle because you just lived it. I said, okay, so I I went into his book, very student-like, reading paragraph for paragraph, meditating and writing, and then praying and saying, hey, God, if you want me to help a lot of people, you're going to have to show me the answer to this cancer. What is it for me to bring to society? What do I need to learn? And in that moment, two things st- stood out as an engineer on hazardous waste sites. The first one is when we were trying to repair and restore And uh, rejuvenate hazardous waste sites, we would actually assess the damage, number one, both the soil and the water. And then I made the connection that my digestive system from my anatomy study and from the mouth to the anus is the earth. And I was like, oh my God, there's toxic waste. I'm a super fun site. There's toxic waste in here. So I need to repair and rebuild and rejuvenate my earth element. I have to rep- re- fix my digestive system. So um, what do I need to do there? So I went back into power now and I said, what do I need to do? Well, back then they started talking about bringing bacteria onto the property to digest some of these things, enzymes and bacteria to digest the heavy metals and the toxicity. So it's like, oh, I'm bacteria deficient. Wait a minute. I'm, I have a slight germ phobia. Holy crap. Okay, so then I made it bigger and I said, wow, what's one thing in society they have a great fear of? Germs. 99% of everything has to be killed in our household, right? All the toxic stuff that we spray to kill the germs. I said, whoa, I got to go the opposite way of all of society now. I actually have to enter the germ world. How am I going to do that? So I had some mentors. They told me to, uh, to do a probiotic implant into the rectum after doing a proper three to five day colon cleanse and stuff like that and get the bacteria in and that they will- The
0: good bacteria.
1: The good bacteria. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I had to start getting my hands dirty, put my hand in the dirt and allow myself to be in nature and allow nature to heal me in that way. Now, that was pretty profound because after I did that probiotic impl- implant, I'd say within four weeks, the tumor started to shrink and so i knew i had some hope now and i knew that i was on a path right. that was right for my particular soul's journey so then i said what else am i afraid of let me go back into the power now let me meditate let me find out and sure enough i was looking at my own dietary principles and i was like oh damn i've been i've been eating um i've been avoiding animal fat so i thought animal fat is the way to go saturated fat is the society's greatest fear back then and so i said i got to enter the fear of society and i have to start eating all kinds of animal fat and lo and behold physiologically they're huge in you know building immune system and cellular membranes and the list goes on and on genetic expression with vitamin d which is you can find in can some you give animal fat. An
0: example of what you mean by animal fat like what did you
1: actually eat plenty of butter And then I started to eat the fattest cuts of meat instead of lean chicken breast. No, give me the dark meat. Um, What's the fattest cuts of meat? Well, ground beef. What do you got? You got 70% uh, beef, 30% fat? Yeah, that's what I want. I don't want that 90%, 10%. Heavy cream. Forget about skim milk or low-fat milk. Give me heavy cream. That would be my milk. (laughs) Got it.
0: Let me, let me ask you this just on that note, Dan, it, you know, I mean, you took all these really extraordinary steps after doing very sort of traditional Western, if you will, treatment, right? So if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S what would it be and why?
1: Wow. That's a great question because, um, I think if they would be honest with what they do, I think that they would be helpful because I think they're marketing.
0: Who's the the they? Well, I think it's,
1: um, they as an industry, allopathic medicine, I think they as an industry, they say that they're into healthcare, but I think that they're really into disease management. And why do I say that is because they come in when you have a symptom and they're not there for prevention. They're not there. Like if I go in now they don't know how to take care of me. If I say I want to be healthier than I am now, what can I do? They have no idea. They don't yeah. even know what to. They didn't even know what to do with me after I left the medical model. Even after chemotherapy, they don't even know how to repair and rejuvenate the body after they That's damage true. it. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah. It's
0: like, "Sayonara. Good luck. You're good."
1: <laughs> and so uh, I think yeah. I think it would be wonderful if they were more honest and open with what their product and services really are. Rather than this sense that we're going to cure, the cure is coming. We're just—it's we're, down the road, and that—and you have nothing to do with your illness. Now, here's what I—I I can really say. It might not be a direct answer to your question, but hopefully it helps. In my world, the medical model says cancer is happening to you, and it's separate from you. So the can—the tumor is separate. You have cancer, so you are are. No part of it. It's just some object in your life that we need to take care of. I'm saying that we need to change that where cancer is happening for you because you're involved in it. If you pull back and look at how a person's living, you will see that they are also experiencing cancer. And they're experiencing cancer for some reason. Something in your life is missing and something in your life has to go in order for you to grow into a, a, conscious life of living, a conscious life of love. Something is missing. And I would love for them to take a look and see them as the person that's experiencing cancer rather than the object of their business model.
0: Yeah, I get that. Dan, are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions?
1: I don't know. I've never done it before. So, <laughs> All
0: right, here you go. are you
1: ready for my intense answers?
0: <laughs> I am ready. Yes. Let's do it. Right. Beach, desert, or mountains?
1: Oh, the, oh, the beach, the desert, or the mountains. Right now, the the beach sounds good. So I'm, I'm in the <laughs> middle of February here. So I'm going with the beach.
0: Beach boys, beetles, or rolling stones?
1: Wow. I'll go rolling stones.
0: What is one word that best describes you?
1: Me? Um, a warrior.
0: Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: I've had this. It's probably going to be either Bella from Santana. And he has another one called Europa, which is Earth's Cry, Heaven's Smile.
0: Okay. Both Santana, right? Both Santana. Love it. What about the last meal you want to eat?
1: I don't want to eat.
0: Last person or people you want to see?
1: Oh, Family. That's easy. Yeah. Any family members. Last
0: last words you will speak. Thank you. And aside from cancer, you, what's a resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also please tell people how they can get in touch with you.
1: Oh, resources for them. You know, I'm on the alternative side. So if I was to think anything, you could actually read the book, the myth of normal. Like Arbor Mate. I think every person in the healthcare industry okay. and cancer patients should read that because it talks about how we've normalized illness as something that's normal. And so Will you
0: send that link to me just to make sure I have the right book? I will definitely. So we'll...
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Great. That's probably the, the best normal. thing they can do. As um Okay. Yeah, we've say disease is inevitable and out of our control, but that's that's a myth. That's a myth. Yeah. Okay, so.
0: And how can people get in touch with you? Uh,
1: they can email me, is a great way danhegrich at yahoo.com for right now. Uh, you can okay. check out my podcast at do the cure. And um, I could send you that link too if you'd like, just to get it accurate.
0: Yes, please because
1: do. Because it is yeah. an acronym c.u.r.e.do the cure. And of course, I have my, that's all accessible on my website, danhegrich.com. Yes. Nice. So
0: CURE is an acronym. What does it stand for?
1: Can't tell you yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: Okay. (laughs) Some people,
1: some people are trying to hold out because it's because a lot of people want this tied up into a book of some kind. And I think I might just make it into a handbook because I think a handbook would be easier instead of a big book. And, uh, I'm I'm living the book and sort of the story, and I'm grateful for you and the podcast to be able to share that story because I'm hoping that it does two things: one, inspires people that you can take back your health and well-being if you're yeah. willing to enter the pain, yeah, and live authentically. Find out how you're living authentically and live more authentically. And then, two, can it provide hope? And I'll give you that acronym: hope is helping other okay. hope is helping other people to evolve into who they really are.
0: Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. I really like that.
1: Okay. So we yeah. have, so my work like is, as a coach is to help people evolve, and that's to empower them to not be afraid of these things that they're experiencing.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. It's It's really remarkable.
1: No problem. Love it.